All right, will you please take your Bibles this morning and open them with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 2. Matthew 2, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. Today we're going to consider the visit of the wise man before returning to the Gospel of Mark next week. So please follow along with me in Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1 as I read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessing upon this word. Take it now and use it, yet as we ask you every Lord's day, use it to transform us into the glory and the image of your lovely Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray these things, amen. So every year on the day after Christmas, which just so happens to be today, every year the decorations start coming down. The radio stations stop playing Christmas music. And most folks start getting ready to return to normal life. But in reality, as I I told my most wonderful Sunday school class, I found out this morning that I was their favorite Sunday school teacher, but I am their only Sunday school teacher, (laughs) at least right now. (laughs) 
I told them this morning that December 25th just marks the beginning of what the historic church has traditionally recognized as Christmas. And then it lasts 12 days and ends on January 6th with the Feast of Epiphany. And the Feast of Epiphany marks the arrival of the wise men. So if you're looking at your calendar, you notice that we're here a little early. But we're Baptist. We're not Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran or anything like that. So we want to get the wise men on their way so we can get back to the Gospel of Mark. But you see, our culture knows nothing of the spiritual riches that this season holds for us. Our culture has reduced Christmas to a season of commercialism and parties. And as wonderful as parties and family get-togethers and buying gifts and all that, you know, I'm not railing against that. We do it at our house. As wonderful as all that is, our culture has reduced Christmas to, to all of that. That climax is on December 25th, and then it moves on to the next holiday that can be bled dry for commercial profit. But the wisdom of the traditions of the historic church calls us to take things a little bit slower. And I want us to take a moment and ask ourselves a question. Have we really taken deliberate steps to savor the deep spiritual truths that Advent and Christmas and these seasons, these truths that they bring us, have we, have we deliberately savored the truths of these seasons? Or have we too, as I have been guilty of at times, have we too been caught up in the Christless vibe of our culture? Have our hearts and minds already started to move beyond this season? Or are we willing to linger just a little bit longer on the riches of Christmas? You know, it seems that the Christmas account itself calls us to do just that, right? Because in our passage today, we meet a group of wise men. There may have been three. We sing We Three Kings. We're going to sing that to close our service. There may have been three. There may have been more than three. The Bible doesn't actually say. But we meet these men who did not arrive at the manger on the night of Jesus' birth like what is depicted in so many nativity scenes. But these men went on a long journey to find an older Christ child, probably somewhere between six months and 20 months old. And so I want us to look at this passage in Matthew 2 this morning together, and I want us to find three important truths that the wise men and their role, their part, their inclusion in the birth narrative of Jesus hold for all those who are willing to linger a little longer on the glories of Christmas. And the first is that the wise men teach us about the providence of God. They teach us 
the pro- they model the providence of God for us. The providence of God is what we might define as the ordinary and sometimes extraordinary means by which He guides the ebb and flow of human history according to His eternal decrees. I'm, I think I want to read that again. The providence of God is the ordinary and sometimes extraordinary, we call those miracles, means by which He guides the ebb and flow of human history according to His eternal decrees. And all throughout the historical account of the visit of the wise men are these unmistakable, unmissable occurrences of God's providential leading. The first is what? A star. A star. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born, so we know then that they were not there at the manger because Jesus had already been born. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, this is Herod the great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east when it rose and have come to worship him. No doubt you've seen nativity scenes with the star kind of hovering over the manger. We have one in our home. It's, it's a Lego, or wait, excuse me, a little people. It's one of those little people nativity scenes, and it has the star. You can press a button, it will light up. But friends, that is, of course, historically inaccurate. Even the popular carol, the first Noel, which you notice we haven't sung this season, the first Noel has the shepherds seeing the star. But there is no indication from Matthew or Luke that the shepherds even saw the star, much less were led by the star to the manger. The star was for the wise men. And there are many speculations about the nature of this star. What was it? What was this star? One popular idea is that this star was some type of astronomical phenomena, perhaps a conjunction of planets, or maybe even a comet. But really, I think the best way for us to understand this star is that it was a temporary supernatural light that led the wise men from where they were in the east, which was probably Persia, to where Jesus was in the house. Verse 9 says, The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10 says that they entered the house, the house, where the child was and worshipped him there. So obviously the manger scene is long gone. But it was the providence of God through the star that had led these wise men from their home in the east to visit the incarnate Son of God. But it was also 
his providence that led them away from evil King Herod when they left. Look at verse number 12. Verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God took them on a providential detour. He led them by a star to the Christ child, and he warned them to go home a different way because of Herod. And so the wise men teach us that we must be willing to follow the providence of God wherever it leads us, but yet know that it always leads us to Christ. God may not put a star in the sky for us to follow. In fact, it's almost guaranteed that he won't. But he leads us by his invisible hand through circumstances good and bad, through closed doors, through open doors. But friends, how often do we resist his providential leading because sometimes it takes us to some very uncomfortable places or maybe even places that we don't want to go, places of hardship, suffering, and loss. But you see, we have an insight that these wise men did not have. We know that everything that God puts into our lives is to lead us to greater conformity to Christ. That is what the promise of Romans 8.28 is, isn't it? We know, Paul says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of His Son. That is where the providence of God leads us, day by day. Not through stars or wandering planets, but through the execution of His eternal decrees in our lives. And it doesn't mean that it was going to always be easy. That it's not going to be dangerous. Friends, these wise men encountered a wicked, paranoid king in Herod. He wanted to put the Christ child to death. And when he realized that they had pulled the wool over his head, he, he really flipped out. But God kept them on their journey to see Christ. And then he kept them until they were back home safely because he is sovereign and he always has our good at heart. Even though he may lead us into some perilous places from time to time. Secondly, we see that the wise men teach us about the grace of God. They teach us the grace of God. Not just the providence of God, but the grace of God. These men were what we might call pagan astrologers. The text literally reads magi, magi. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, I believe that's the way it's translated. They were magi. They made predictions based upon the position and the movement of the stars throughout the night sky. These were men who stood in need of divine grace. 
They were pagan Gentiles who were not in covenant relationship with the God of Israel. But Christ, this Christ child, came to save not just Israel, but all who would believe. And so Matthew's inclusion of them in the birth narrative of Jesus is very telling, isn't it? How so? Because the Old Testament, which Matthew knew up and down, because think of all the times that he quotes the prophets just in Matthew chapter 2, the Old Testament forbids astrology. It forbids making predictions based upon the stars. Let me read you a verse. Isaiah chapter 47 says this, Those who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you, behold, they are like stubble, the prophet says. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Astrology and seeking guidance from the stars is forbidden in the Bible. Why? Because God is the one who is sovereign over the course of history. He determines the course of history, not the stars. Yet, in His divine grace, it was to ancient astrologers that God sent this supernatural light to guide these men to Christ. And friends, they were actually most likely, almost certainly, responding to a prophecy from another ancient pagan Gentile prophet named Balaam. You remember him, don't you? He was the one whose donkey had a conversation with him. The kind of things that scientists and us and our materialistic, naturalistic minds today dismiss as myth. But no, Balaam's donkey talked. And Balaam talked. And here's what he said in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a ruler, shall rise out of Israel. This is, this is a pagan Gentile prophet who was later killed and judged because of his role in the idolatry of Israel. I see a star, but not yet. I behold him, but not near, not here, not near. He will rise out of Jacob and out of Israel. You see, God's grace had come to these pagans who were queuing in to something they knew of about a star. And what is, what is most remarkable in this passage here is actually the contrast that Matthew draws between these pagan Gentile magi acting on the prophecy of a pagan prophet and the king and religious leaders of Israel. Think about it. Look at verse number 3. When Herod the king, he's king over Judea, he's 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of, his, of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. He's quoting from Micah chapter 5 here. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. My people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You see, astrology was widely practiced near this first near this time, this period. And the ancients believed that the stars predicted the rise and fall of leaders and rulers. So the appearance of a star then for Herod was a very significant event. This man was notoriously paranoid. When you read him, when you read his history, just you find that he was he was really a maniac. And he was concerned at the report of the birth of a new king in Israel. And further down in the chapter, Matthew tells us that in his paranoia, Herod had all the boys in Bethlehem under two years old killed. So this king of Israel, you remember, we got to connect the dots. You remember back when the ancient Israelites said, we want a king. Give us a king. And God says, no, I'm your king. But if you want a king, have it your way. And now, centuries later, their king... was trying to kill the true king. He had deceived the wise men under the guise of wanting to worship the Christ child. The chief priests, the scribes, they were complicit in his sin by giving him the information that would lead him to the birthplace of the Messiah. So Herod and the religious leaders of Israel rejected the Christ. But these pagan astrologers from the east, <laughs> they only wanted to worship him. And that brings us to a couple of questions today, friends. Number one, how do we respond to Jesus as king? Because that was how Herod was responding to him. As king. Do we receive him as the promised Davidic king, the promised savior from our sin? Or do we see him as a threat to our autonomous rule over our lives? You see? That was Herod's sin. A rejection of the lordship of Christ. And friends, I want to suggest to you this morning 
that this is the fundamental sin of us all. We want to rule our own lives. We don't want any king over us except self. Jesus was a threat to the kingdom of Herod. He was a threat to the kingdom of Caesar. He is a threat to all the kingdoms of this world, and most of all, He is a threat to the kingdom of self in each one of our hearts because He comes to us as the only Lord and King. You cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve two kings. So friends, let us be wise men. Let us be wise women and wise children this morning and bow down in worship of Christ the King. The second question that this passage presents us with is how do we respond to those for for, for whom God's grace has reached? How do we respond to those? These pagan magi would not have been welcomed by the religious leaders of Israel. They were needy recipients of divine grace. And so we too must be careful to acknowledge ourselves that we too are sinners who need grace. And then be willing to extend that grace to others. You see, we're, 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 we're really good at receiving grace. We're not so good at giving it. We must be willing to extend the grace of God to others who need it, even if they be pagans like these men who made it into the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, we see in this passage that the wise men teach us that true joy is found in Christ. True joy. Is in Christ. Verse 10 says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Look at the, the words that Matthew chooses. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures... Friends, are we going to open our treasure to Christ this morning? The treasure of our heart, of our love, of our affections. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's probably where the idea that there were three of them. Because there are three, three gifts or three types of gifts. They're like the shepherds who as Luke reports, rejoiced at the message of the angel. These wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at the sight of the star that led them to Jesus. And they brought their gifts. And their gifts, friends, tell their own story. Gold, because Jesus was a royal king. Frankincense, because Jesus was divine and he was 
Emmanuel, God with us. His, God's presence now dwelt among us. Myrrh, because Jesus would die as a substitute for sinners. God in his wise providence used these pagan astrologers and their gifts to prophesy the life of Jesus Christ. Born a king, God with us, the son who would die for the very ones who rejected him as king and divine son. But to those like the shepherds and like the wise men who do receive him and bow to his lordship, those find in him true lasting joy. Christmas is just not some sentimental joy, friends. In Christ is real joy. The life that seeks Christ will find joy, not the fleeting joy of the world, but a deep abiding joy, a crucified joy. I want again to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It seems like I, I quote him all the time at Christmas. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, There is a kind of joy that knows nothing at all of the pain, distress, and anxiety of the heart, but it cannot last. It can only numb for a time. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the distress of the cross. Therefore, it is invincible and irrefutable. Friends, do you have that joy this morning? Hear me. There is no joy apart from Christ. If you're watching, if you're listening, there is no joy. If you're a teenager... There is no joy apart from Christ. But this joy is not the absence of sorrow or the absence of anxiety or the absence of suffering. The joy that Christ holds for us is the assurance that because Christ has suffered and was raised to glory, then in our suffering, we too will be raised to glory. This is the joy that is that deep breath of truth that settles our heart in unsettled times. Do you have that joy? The joy of the wise men today. Do you know their joy? Though they were pagans, they humbled themselves before the true king, before the true star of wonder, and they found true joy. The Magi looked on Christ as a young child, but we look on Him as a crucified and risen Savior who calls all men and women, old and young alike, to turn from themselves, to turn from the ways of Balaam, to turn from the ways of Herod, and trust in Him alone. Friends, if you are here today and have gone through this Advent season, this Christmas season, and have yet to kneel before the manger, which became a cross, which became an empty tomb, 
then it's time to be led by some pagans this morning. Let's follow the pagan astrologers to the house where the Christ child dwelled. Let's forsake our sin and our self-righteousness and bow in holy submission to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let's pray.